Let's give the Lord a hand as Brother Green comes. Praise the Lord, everybody. Man, what a thrill to be here with you. If you can't be in South Africa, this is the place to be. <laughs> Amen. So good to be here, and I'm not doubting at all what God has done. And so I'm feeling a tremendous anointing, and we had just a prayer meeting with the South Africa 2018 team maybe an hour or so ago, and tremendous anointing that fell in this place. And uh, we have asked God to begin for us what he'll do this week right here, right now. And so we're expecting the supernatural. We're expecting outpouring of the Spirit of God. And so glad to be here. I want to give high honor to my friend, dear friend, and your pastor and his bride and, and their family. We love them so much. We've taken someone from the Walden family to South Africa every year for years. They're going to have to have like more children or something for us to... Let's look at the Word of God on that one. <laughs> Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. Glad you're here, Judah. Revelation 17, verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And I'll be using these three words a lot called chosen and faithful but I've chosen for my title today I've done it a thousand times I've done it a thousand times God bless you you may be seated <clears throat> are you hungry for the word of God tonight the prophet of God hears from the Lord. As God says unto him, I have rejected the anointing, the kingship of Saul. So I need you to go to the house of Jesse. And there to anoint the individual that will be the next king of Israel. What a tremendous opportunity that Jesse has. That from his household, the next king of Israel will be anointed. So Samuel gets his ram's horn that would take the anointed oil, which contained, by the way, almost six quarts, a gallon and a half of anointing oil. Not some of this touch the oil and dab your head, but a gallon and a half of oil. And he goes to the house of Jesse, long story short, and makes the announcement, God has sent me to anoint who will be the next king of Israel. Jesse is so proud. He is so excited. He must have been thinking in his mind that my eldest is the perfect specimen to be the next king of Israel. That there is no one like Eliab. Strong shoulders. Strong back. Narrow hips. 
tall. He looks like a king. And so it was that Jesse said, look, this must be the one. Surely God has sent you here to anoint my firstborn Eliab to be king. And maybe even within the eyes of the prophet, it looked like a kingly individual standing before him. But God says, not the one. And so since he's not the one, Jesse brings the next son in line. And Abinadab, keen look in his eye, intelligence, brain in that boy's head. Again, one that would serve well, but God says, not the one. And Shammah is presented, not the one. Nathaniel, not the one. Radii, not the one. Ozem, who names their kid Ozem? <laughs> not the one. And seven sons, six sons of Jesse is paraded before the prophet. And each time, no matter how good they looked or how intelligent or how much talents and gifts, God tells the prophet, I'm not looking on the outside. I'm not looking at how gifted they are. I'm not looking at how much they have to offer with their talents. But I'm looking for something in the heart. Because if the heart is right, then I can develop the talents within them. I need the heart right. And when Jesse has paraded the six strongest and most intelligent sons before the prophet, and each time none of them has been chosen of God, Jesse does a curious thing. He says, well, let's take one more look at every one of these. Maybe you didn't see my firstborn alive real good. Take another look at him. And he paraded the same six sons before the prophet. And one by one, those that were rejected the first time were rejected the second time. Until the prophet Samuel said, is there not any more in your household? And it's almost like Jesse's apologizing and he's ducking his head and kind of sticking his foot on the ground and saying, well, yeah, there's one more. Almost like he's saying, I can tell you right now, not the one. <laughs> there's one more, but he's the least of all of his brothers, and he's way out with the sheep. And Samuel the prophet declares, I will not even sit down until you fetch him, and he stands before me. And so David is summoned from the shepherd's pasture where he is protecting and watching the sheep. And when that little skinny lad, perhaps 11 years old at this proximate time in his life, Rudy complected, red hair, freckled face, skinny shouldered little boy stands before the prophet. Something leaps in the heart of the man of God and God speaks to him, that's the one. It's not on the outside. It's not his gifts. It's not his talents. He's got a heart that is after my heart and that's what I want to reign, to reign and to rule in the land. And so Jesse or watches as Samuel takes that horn of oil and begins to pour it over the head of that little lad and that kinky, curly, red hair begins to get plastered to his skull. And 
oil begins to drip off his ears and run down into his eyes and he really don't understand the fullness of what's happening as the oil is upon him saturating his little outfit that he has on and squishing between his sandal toe feet as he hears the words of the prophet of God the anointing is upon him he will be the next king of Israel David leaves the anointing. Understand how powerful the calling is. How powerful the choosing and the anointing is. He leaves the anointing and goes straight back to the pasture. God will call you right where you're at. He will develop you right where you're at. If you're thinking because you've called and God's anointed you that there's an immediate open door, not so. You're in the place where you're at that has produced your heart to have a calling on your life. But now that you're called and now that you're chosen, there's a development that will happen within you. So, David makes his way back to the sheep that he's been watching. And if you would allow me some... Uh, imagination and just my thought process in several areas of this message. I can see David going back to these sheep and he finds that one little lamb, you know, that lamb that has always given him a hard time and always straying away, always getting in the places he shouldn't be getting in, always causing problems. And as he's causing problems again, David picks that little lamb up and looks him right in the face and said, let me tell you something, little lamb. Just a couple of hours ago, you gave a shepherd boy a hard time. But if you give me a hard time now, you're not just messing with a shepherd boy, but now you're messing with the next king of Israel. I don't think he was at all cocky. That's not what you see in his psalms. That's not what you see in the writings that we have of him. But there had to be something within him that he realized who he was in God. That even if his brothers didn't know who he was and didn't have any confidence in him, that even if his patriarch father really didn't believe that he would be what the prophet said he would be, still he knew, God has called me, God has chosen me, and I'm anointed. So as David is beginning to realize what has happened to him, he begins to think along these lines. If I am going to be the next king of Israel, God leads and protects through this mighty nation of Israel's army. So if I'm going to be a man's man, and I'm going to lead powerful men into battle, and they're going to follow me, then I better have some kind of expertise. I better have some kind of skills. And so because of a calling and because of anointing, he is looking around and there are no swords laying around the pasture, no, no spears leaning against trees. But there in his back pocket, there happens to be a little, a little slingshot. And so he begins to practice with his slingshot. If that's what he has, then he's going to use what he has and become the best slingshot thrower in all the entire land. Wherever God has placed him, whatever God has given him, he's going to become an expert. I can see him looking around and 
thinking about his little scrawny shoulders and, and biceps that almost are not even existent. So he goes over to that huge rock. It's his barbells of the day and he, he wraps his arms around it and he goes to lean and to put his fragile back into picking it up. He knows there has to be resistance in order to build strength. And so he begins to resist the gravity that's pulling that boulder and he lifts it up and perhaps he didn't budget the first time he tried but he tries again and again and again maybe even a thousand times. At night time he goes home and on the rooftop and it was very customary his time and place that they would sleep under the stars the children would or sometimes the the uh, father of the house or the man of the house would sleep on the rooftop with a railing around and perhaps he's there and thinking that if if I'm going to be the next king of God's people then I've got to learn how to talk to God I, I've got to learn to hear his voice so that he can speak to me and lead this nation Looking around, there is no trumpet. There doesn't seem to be any piano, but an old rusted out harp must have been somewhere nearby. And so he picks up the harp and takes his finger and strums across the strings and it sounds a little bit like... (laughs) But he tries again. And he tries again. And he tries again till it becomes a, a little more melodious and a little bit of harmony has come. Maybe he tries even a thousand times. Lifting up his eyes, he looks into the heavens and starts talking to God. And a relationship begins to develop until he's writing poetry that speaks his heart to God. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor and in the daytime he's practicing with his slingshot lifting to try to build muscle mass the nighttime he's playing his harp becoming an expert with what he has and singing and writing poetry unto his God I um, read a story and this was out of a reader's digest Condensed, and uh, the story was about a major league closer. And if you're not sure what a major league closer is, I don't want you to be lost the whole story here. So it's the pitcher that comes into the professional baseball game, usually now, when his team is up. They are winning, and he comes in the last inning, usually now, to get the last three outs or so. And if he gets the last three outs, he closes the game out. He wins the game. He saves the game for his team. And so this particular story that I was reading, I, I'm going to throw it out here. I believe it, was, believe it was John Wetland, but don't quote me on that. But this particular guy was the first time, the first year that he was in the major leagues. And his team did well. They had veteran pitchers that had been pitching for years and knew how to get strikes and knew how to get outs, knew how to get wins. And so his team did very well. And he pitched and did pretty good and had like 30 saves and maybe only five or six blown saves the entire year. So he was doing really well. His team went to 
the playoffs. And in that year of playoff, just one playoff, and then they go to the championship games. And, and his team did well in the playoff series, and, and he pitched one or two times, no big pressure, and they go to the World Series. Now, whichever team wins the first four out of the seven games will be declared champions of the world. World Series champs. And so his team and the team they were facing went back and forth. And some won and then the other won until they are now tied 3-3 three to three in the series. And they're playing the last game. So whoever wins the seventh game of the World Series is champions. They had their ace pitcher on the mound. And he was doing really well. But he started to get tired his team had scored two runs in the second and then on toward the seventh or the eighth and nor the two runs. And so they're up four to three and they are now in the ninth inning. And this ace pitcher has thrown over a hundred pitchers, pitches and he's getting tired and he gets one out and walks a man and, and gets another base hit that happens and, and then there's two outs. So here's the scene. It's the seventh game of the World Series. They are up four to three. The bases are now loaded, and there's two outs in the ninth. This is it. They need one more out. And so because he has hit a batter and given up a base hit and walked somebody, the manager comes out to the mound, and he says, Come on, Ace. Tell me you've got one more out in you. But the guy coming into the batter's box kills this pitcher, always hits him hard. And the ace looked at the skipper and said, I'm going to be honest with you for once in my major league life. My arm feels like rubber. I can barely feel the laces on the grips of my finger. He said, uh, I think you might be better to go to the bullpen. And the manager looks in the bullpen, and there's the rookie down there. Rookie, right? But they got here with the rookie, so they're going to live or die with the rookie. He calls him in, and he gives the ball to the rookie, and he says, all we need is one out. You see that guy right there? Just strike him out. That's all we need. And so the rookie gets the ball, and he gets the glove, and everybody is ready, and he goes to the back of the mound, turns his back on the batter, and he talks to himself. He likes psyching himself up, right? He's like psyching himself up. And so he's got the ball and he's turned his back and, and he's and he's kicking dust around until dust is starting to fly like a dirt devil. He takes the ball, slams it in the glove. Then he runs up to the rubber and he gets his sign and he grunts as he throws a fastball. Strike one. And when he throws that fastball, strike one. It's on the outside corner. It's unexpectedly fast for the batter, and he wasn't quite ready for it. And so he is down 0-1. The rookie gets on the mound again. He goes to the back just like he did before. It must have worked one time, so he's going to try it again. And he's back there talking to himself. I'm going to strike this guy. And he slams the ball in his glove. Dust is flying. He runs up to the rubber, gets a look. It's a fastball again. And this time with a grunting, lets the fastball fly. And it's toward the inside part of the plate. But the batter's trying to catch up to the speed and he swings and the pitch just goes over his bat, strike two. He needs one more strike and he will save the game for his team and they'll be World Series champions. I'm losing it right in that light as it's coming right here. No, we're good. 
And so he gets the ball again, just like he's done twice, gets to the back of the mound, and he's kicking around until dust is flying everywhere. You can't even see him out there. Dust is flying so bad. And he's getting his, he throws it in the ground. He runs up to the rubber and gets the sign. And this time the catcher puts down that change up. And so that circle change, he grunts as he throws, same motion. The ball comes floating up. And long before it crosses the plate, the batter has swung from his heels and, and missed the ball and it is strike three out he has saved the game true story he saved the game for his team they run out and mob him all of those players are jumping on him it's a dog pile in the middle of the diamond and he's on the bottom there somewhere finally they pull him out from the bottom put him on their shoulders and they carry him off the field all of the reporters are in the locker room trying to get the greatest story but they're not going to the man who hit the home runs and they're not going to the ace pitcher who pitched eight and two thirds inning they're going to the rookie and this is their question how did you stand up to that kind of pressure that is the biggest spotlight that we can think of that is the highest pressure that we can think of how did you do that and he's a rookie you know he really don't have enough brains to know that this is a tough situation and so he looks at them and he says ah guys i've done that a thousand times what are you talking about we followed your career. You've never been to any kind of championship game in high school. You never went to any kind of series in your minor league. There's no way that you can tell us you've done this a thousand times. You've never been in this situation right here. Seventh game of the World Series. He said, oh, I've done that a thousand times. What do you mean, rookie? He said, well, I grew up on an Iowa farm. And he said, from the time that I was knee-high to a grasshopper, my dad bought me a baseball, and he bought me a glove. And there was on the back side of the barn, white strike zone. He said, I would go out there day after day with my glove and my baseball, and I would look in at that strike zone, and I would practice. But he said, it wasn't just practicing, but I'd go out there and dream while I was practicing. And I'd get that ball and glove and I'd stare in and get the signs from the imaginary catcher and I'd say, fastball, yeah. Strike one. And I would hear in the background of my mind the roar of the crowd. It's the seventh game of the World Series. The bases are loaded. Their best batter is up to bat. It's that little rookie on the mound. There's no way that this is going to work. And I'd get my sign. I'd look at that old barn. But in my mind's eye, it was the seventh game of the World Series. He said, matter of fact, every time that I went out there to the barn and practiced, it was the seventh game of the World Series. Every time I threw a strike, I struck him out. Every time I looked in, I had that sequence. He said, I have done this a thousand times in my dreams, I have done this a thousand times in my mind. So when I stepped on the stage today, I've already done this a thousand times. I knew just how to look. I knew just how to pitch. I knew just how to stand. I've done this a thousand times. Well, you have to realize 
is that when David is out here practicing with his slingshot, it's not sterile practice. Well, let's see, it's 2 o'clock, I've got to practice for an hour. No, he's dreaming. He's dreaming that there as he's watching the sheep, that must be a bear that's coming. Now, we know it's just a little scrub bush over here, but to David, that's a bear. So he reaches down and picks up a smooth stone, and he puts it in his slingshot, and he lets it fly. And probably for years, he missed that little scrub bush. But finally, after a while, he got a little more practice, a little more expertise in what God had given him to work with. And finally, he was able to say, look, there's a bear, and pick it up and let it hit dead center every time. In his mind, it was a lion come to steal a lamb, but it was just a little tree over there. But he picks up that smooth, small stone like he's done a thousand times, puts it in the slingshot, winds it up, runs toward it, and lets it fly and hits it dead center. And every time he hits it, he must have heard the crowd going crazy. <sighs> David has won the battle for all of Israel. And that side of that rocky outcropping, to David's mind, it's a giant with armies that have come against the nation of Israel. And so he dreamily puts a smooth, small stone in that slingshot and practices it until he can kill that giant. I want, I want you to see something because one day he's been dreaming and practicing for a long time. One day, a real live bear comes. And so David has to protect the sheep. So he reaches down to get him a smooth, small stone, just like he's done a thousand times. And he puts it in the slingshot like he's done a thousand times. He gets that thing humming like he's done a thousand times, runs toward it, lets it fly, and he literally kills a bear. The Bible says this. That there was a time that a lion and a bear came against the sheep. Live. Lion. Bear. And the Bible says that David chased it down and cornered it. What kind of crazy fool corners a bear? Or a lion? But more than that, he grabbed it by the beard. Is that a bear or a lion? beard and smote him. Paul. David's not the little bit old skinny boy that hey he was in the past, but something has happened to him because day after day, week after week, month after month, he's been practicing, he's been dreaming, he's been believing, he has faith, and he's dreaming that one day God will. His father calls him, has no clue really what's been happening in the pasture. Has no clue really. His father calls him and says, uh, you know you're powerful, awesome, anointed, great brothers that are fighting in the army against the Philistines. Well, I want you, and to me I see it was almost like this. It's almost like Jesse grabbed him by the face and said, look at me, David. Here's the instructions. Bread and cheese. Deliver, get news, come back. You got that? No, you're a dreamer, but that's what I want you to do. And so David is taking the bread and cheese to his brothers that are fighting in the army. He's supposed to get news and come right back. 
But it's interesting to note that he also has something in his back pocket. That old slingshot happens to be with him. And when he gets to where the armies of the Philistines and the Israels are encamped in that valley, there is that uncircumcised giant hollering out insults to Israel and Israel's God. But this is not just Israel's God. It's the God that David has been singing to, loving on and writing poetry to, and getting close to and hearing the voice of God. And when the insults begin to come against his God, he gets upset and he turns to his brothers that he thinks should be more faith-filled than what they are. And he says, why doesn't somebody go shut the mouth of that ugly individual? And the brothers say, whoa, easy, David. You naughty little boy. What? You've come here to insult us. We know the naughtiness of your heart. You need to be quiet, David, because somebody's going to think that you're not afraid. And when they hear his vigor, he's lifted up his voice again and he shouts out, I said, why doesn't somebody go shut the mouth of that cursing individual? Others heard that David was not afraid. The only man on the side of the valley that's not afraid is a shepherd boy who doesn't have armory and weaponry and skills for army and battles. So he's brought to King Saul. You're not afraid if you win. I'm going to give you my daughter. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you clothing. I'm going to give you all these things. So go ahead and fight Goliath. I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you the best sword, the best spear, the best helmet. He said, I'm going to take my armament and give it to you. And when David puts all of that stuff on that was King Saul's, he's clunking around like he's lost. I've not proved this sword. But what I have proved is a slingshot. I didn't have a sword in the pasture. So I'd be a fool to try to go out there and slay when I haven't proved it. But what I have proved, God has anointed me for. Let me tell you how a real live lion came against the sheep and God gave me victory with this slingshot. Let me tell you about the battle that came against our church and tried to tear and destroy families and I came against it with prayer. My slingshot of prayer and the enemy was revealed. Let me tell you about the battles I faced and God has stood up and anointed me. That's what I have proved. I've not used this sword and this spear, but this slingshot, I've done that a thousand times in my dreams. And so he is out by the brook picking up five smooth, small stones like he has done a thousand times before. He heads out to the valley where there's that, some theologians say, nine foot two of ugly. If you're nine foot two, you're ugly. That's all there is to it. You, just, you can't grow that tall and still be pretty. Nine foot two, this soldier of the Philistine army has been fighting since he was toddling with wooden swords when he was two years old trying to teach him to be the best soldier that anyone could ever be in this world. And David is running toward him like he has done a thousand times proving his slingshot. It's interesting to hear the words that David says to this giant. He says, basically, God's going to give me the victory 
And when he does, I'm going to cut your head off. Now, that's a pretty bold statement for somebody that has a slingshot. He doesn't have a Swiss army knife in his pocket. How's he going to cut that? What he is telling Goliath is that God's going to give me the victory so completely that I'm going to take your weapon from your hunt. This is how God gives you the victory. I'm going to take the weapon that you thought was going to destroy me and I'm going to lift it up and cut your head off and you will not have life anymore because what you thought would destroy me, God is going to turn it around for good. And so David runs toward the giant like he's done a thousand times. Puts that rock in the sling like he's done a thousand. It's not some miracle that God had to supernaturally direct that stone. David had practiced and proved his particular gifting and anointing. So that when he lets that rock fly, it's like he's done a thousand times before. It would have been a shock and a surprise if he had not hit the unprotected place in the visor and the head of this giant. And when the giant falls down to the ground, David takes the sword from the hands of that giant, maybe puts one foot on the back and one foot on the head and severs the neck right there. And once the neck is severed, he picks up that black curly head of that giant. Can you imagine how big that head was beside that little... Lad David, maybe now somewhere around 15 years of age or so. And he takes that head. Any deer hunters here, you know what that looks like, right? Eyes roll back in the head, tongues hanging down. And here's Goliath's head, right? And he takes it all the way back to Jerusalem. And when they're walking through Jerusalem after the army of the Philistines have been destroyed, the ladies and the fair maidens come out to sing this song. Saul has killed his thousands. And David, his tens of thousands. Not true. David's killed one big ugly, right? But while God was preparing you like a hand in glove for your ministry, where you was going to be ministering at, God was preparing that place. And Don't ever get ahead of God in your calling and your anointing. Let God develop within you what he's called you to do. Use the expertise of what you have and prove it until you're an expert because God is preparing a place and you will fit perfectly in that place if you do what you're supposed to do now. I was raised in the church, and as I've often said, I was sleeping under the pews when I was way too old to sleep under the pews. And finally, one service, I decided to stay awake long enough to hear the preacher. And the evangelist, the fiery Stevie Cole evangelist, preached message, conviction. And at five years of age, I went down to the altar knowing that I needed God. My mom came up beside me and prayed me through the Holy Ghost. Five years of age. Even at that young age, I knew this was something precious. And a God had heard my cry and my prayer. And so felt that it was at least significant enough that he would answer. And fill me with his spirit. That was in March Junior camp was coming up down at the old campgrounds. And I was 
turning six right in July, so I was right on the edge there where I could go, where I couldn't. I think they must have made an exception because my stepbrother, five years older than me, was going to be there, and he was going to watch after me. (laughs) And so uh, I got to go to camp as a junior camper. And I can remember, not who the preacher was, can you remember that? And I can't remember what was preached or what was sung, but I remember when the altar call came, I went running down to the altar because he talked about receiving the Holy Ghost. And it was so good, I wanted it again. Is there a witness in the place? (laughs) And so I went down the altar. I'm either, you know, right at six or still almost, still five, almost six, and I'm down on the altar. I can remember these groups of people coming around me, and there was ladies and men, they were praying for me. Come on, little man, you can do it. Come on. And they're praying for me, and they're telling me what to say. Just say hallelujah. Tell God you're sorry for all the rotten things you've done in the five years of your life, you know. True story, but. And finally, that first night of junior camp, I broke through the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues again. It was so good, I didn't want to stop speaking in tongues, so I stayed around until I walked the saints, the Most High God, and finally, I put my hands down and, and I looked around the three or four that were still there, and they said, Oh, I'm so excited you got the Holy Ghost. I said, Oh, I've had that a long time. You know, like two months. <laughs> and next night, again, I don't remember much about the camp, but next night I knew it was an opportunity to get the Holy Ghost, right? So when the altar was given, I went down praying the altar. I don't worry about that one group, so I realized the people around me were, I think these were young men, totally different group, you know. The other one going to pray for me because I've had it a long time, right? So. I prayed for a while. They helped me. They were, they were beautiful. It wasn't long until I speak in other tongues. The Spirit of God gave it. It was, it, was, it was amazing. The love of God, the peace of God. Even as a five or six-year-old, I knew what I was feeling was precious. Got through praying. I opened up my eyes, and they said, Congratulations, you received the Holy Ghost, and you've been speaking in tongues for 15 minutes. I said, Oh, I do that all the time. It had been at least three times in my life, you know. Wednesday night I went down to get the Holy Ghost. Nobody would pray for me. (laughs) But God was there. And he filled me with the Spirit. That first camp that I had the opportunity to be with, with all kind of young people and great preaching, and I got the Holy Ghost every day. It solidified something in my spirit. I can remember growing up, and my stepdad was a home mission pastor in Fayetteville, Georgia. And we'd go to church, and sometimes there'd be just our family theirs. They were starting and trying to build that church. Other times, the church would actually grow up to maybe as much as 35, 40, and then sometimes go back down. And uh, dad, was, dad was operating at the level of his gifting, tremendous man of God. I can remember something that happened when I was seven or eight years of age. My mom and dad had one of these houses. It was a split foyer when you walked in the front door. Upstairs was where everybody lived. Downstairs was an unfinished basement. And in this unfinished basement was nobody knows what, right? Mom and dad, mom and dad were pack rats. They couldn't throw anything away. You know, they had this excuse. Well, if you grew up in the Depression, young man. So they couldn't throw anything away. And so uh, there were 
boxes down there with, you know, I had these beautiful pair of pants when I was six. They were like striped vertically and brown and orange and red and yellow. They were the most awesome things you've ever seen in your life. And, and I wore them to play, to church, to school. I slept in them. I showered in them. I swam in them. Them were my pants. And finally, when they were like six inches above my ankles, my mom said, take them things off. And I said, I have no other clothes. And she opened the drawer and showed me things I never knew I had. And I took these pants off. She laundered them, folded them up, put them in a box, and put them somewhere down in the basement. Like, why? When I have kids and they start growing up, they're going to look for them pants? Actually, maybe they would now, but I, you know, at the understanding, it's... There would be toys that we have for Christmas and a wheel would fall off of a car and instead of throwing it away, that, you know, dollar piece of junk toy, Dad would take it, put it in a box and put it in some kind of graveyard for toys in the basement. Take that down to the basement. There's no telling what's in the basement. It's just, I'm telling you, from floor to ceiling, stacked just boxes of who knows what. But it become one of our favorite play places. Hide and seek, chase, you know we did that stuff. And there was a pew that dad had found somewhere. It was an open leg pew. It was against the wall. And there were boxes in front, boxes on top, all the way to the ceiling. But if you get down, you could crawl through the open leg of that pew. And there's nothing under the pew. And it was, I'm guessing, maybe 10 or 12 feet. And you could crawl that length. And then there was a table. Way back behind all them boxes and junk, the table. Boxes on top. Around it to the ceiling, nothing underneath the table. And so you could squeeze underneath that table. And at the end of that table, there was what we called an alcove. I'm pretty sure we called it that because I read too many Hardy Boy books. But alcove was there. And we would go under that pew, into that table, into that little alcove, and the hot water heater was there. If the hot water heater had died, it had been forever, right? And so we're down there, and that's where we would play church. Anybody here ever played church? I'm not talking about in church, you know. I'm talking about... That was tough, wasn't it? That... We used to play church. In particular, it would be uh, me and my two sisters, one older and one younger. I can remember this time in particular. I think I was eight or nine years of age, and, and we were back in our alcove playing church. Now, we were playing. And you got to understand what we basically did is we'd sing the songs that we all knew from the hymnal. Turn to page 52. And we all knew what that was. And 86, Heaven's Jubilee, and, and Lily of the Valley. I mean, we, we knew what the songs were by the number of the page. And we'd get back there, and my older sister would be the song leader, and she'd say, turn to page 86, Heaven's Jubilee. And we'd start singing Heaven's Jubilee, and immediately we'd start shouting. We're, we're playing church, right? And there was this individual in our church who had a lot of um, energy, not as much rhythm. And so immediately, that's how I wanted to shout. And there I go shout like this brother at church. Now, my mom had this. And back in these days, they put the hair up on their head. And they actually put milk cartons under their head to give it structure and built their hair. Some of you looked at me like I'm crazy. This is true. And built the hair around. So mom's hair stuck up like this high, you know, and had little curls on the top of it. And when she got to feeling the spirit, she feeling her fingers. And she started doing it like this. And then she'd start rocking. She'd rock back. And her head, her hair up here would almost touch the ground. And then she'd come forward. 
and her head would almost, and we'd actually get out there as she's going back and forth and measure, six inches, eight inches. So my sister, she's going to shout like mom, and so I'm over here, blah, blah, and so, and here we go. And so we had our church serve, just playing, just goofing off. Then it was time for the preaching. So uh, probably can't guess who the preacher was. And so I stood behind them two boxes. That was my pulpit. And I took my text from that hardy boy. And I said my message, my outline, my closing, my altar call, and everything with one sentence. God is the answer! (laughs) And all of a sudden, into that little basement, unfinished, with boxes all over the place, back in that alcove under the table, past the pew, presence of God began to fall and I looked at my sisters and they're wide eyed we know what this is this is the presence of God that we feel at church but it ain't supposed to be happening here we're playing we might be a little sacrilegious we're goofing off we're making fun we're not even really praising we're just and his presence falls and I felt something cold come over me, a boldness. Didn't know it till years later. An anointing came over me. And I thought, well, that was a pretty good message. I think I'm going to preach it again. So I did. I said, God is the answer. And when I looked at my sisters, they were feeling something they weren't expecting. And like jackrabbits, they were gone on their knees. Two underneath the table out of the pew and they were gone. And I decided to preach it one more time to a congregation of zero. I said, God is the answer. And I felt something fall upon my head, anointing that went down my back, a warmth that came across my spirit. And I'm sitting there with the presence of God so thick, you could reach out and grab a hold of it. Put it in your pocket and save it for later. It was powerful in the place. And I'm loving what I'm feeling. I can remember after that day, Watching as we drove sometimes three and four hours to fellowship rallies and She's for Christ kickoff meetings all over the state, Valdosta, America, you name it. And watching that evangelist as he preached and talked, felt the presence of God, watched his actions, his inflections, and listened to him. I can remember laying on my bed so many nights, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age, where, where I dreamed that somehow God would use me like he did at that youth rally or that perhaps I could even see a miracle one day my teenage years I I got pretty stupid and I started walking away from something precious but when I came back presence of God God reminded me one day in a prayer meeting before service He took me back to that place and said, I called you there. But would you say yes here? Some 14, 15 years later. In that prayer meeting, I said yes. God began to speak to me. Global ministry of healings and miracles of operation in the gifts of the Spirit. But I want you to know, because of my lifestyle and my walking away, I was 31 years of age, 10 years after I received that calling, 31 before I ever preached behind a pulpit, 
of a Pentecostal church. Oh, I preached, but it was out when I was deer hunting and nobody was listening. I finally found a place where I could go to a prison ministry that would let me come. Prayed people through, baptized them in Jesus' name, the prison ministry. I started a homeless missions. People started getting the Holy Ghost. Miracles started happening. Taught Bible study and filled up the pew beside me with people that I had taught Bible studies to. I mowed the grass at the church. I did anything that I could where I was at. And it's ten years later before some of the dreams really start coming to pass. But when I get the opportunity to take an anointed group to South Africa, and God speaks to me about seeing literal miracles this next week. And people and children that are going to be a breakthrough as the Holy Ghost falls upon them. An entire nation or organization are going to receive a liberty. I do not tremble at confessing that we're going to see miracles. Because I've done that a thousand times. Within 10 years when nobody was asking me to preach and nobody was scheduling revivals and nobody was asking me to pray intercessory prayers, on the backside of whatever desert that God had me, I wasn't just practicing praying, practicing reading the Word of God, practicing worship, practicing praise, practicing outreach, practicing to... I was dreaming. And when I'd get down to pray, nobody could hear me. Nobody could see me, but in my mind's eye, I knew. When I close the closet today in prayer, I'm giving the devil a black eye. I'm going to rip people that he's taken to a devil's hell straight out of his grasp. I'm going to rip even the most powerful soul winner that would be developed into the kingdom out of his grip. Nobody heard me. Nobody saw me. And maybe my prayers didn't mean diddly. But in my dreams, this was going to be the greatest prayer meeting that had ever happened. On that church where it was a little tight and the service was going, I sat on that first pew and I realized that it was time to worship and it might have been dead and dried. And when I got out to worship, it didn't flow. But somehow, it didn't matter so much because it's not just trying to get a little service going. This could be the opportunity that heaven looks down and memorializes a worship. This could be the praise that breaks us through to the greatest. And I was dreaming. Every time I prayed, every time I looked at that word, every time I went to my knees, every time I praised, every time I worshiped, whatever ministry I had, even if it was to a homeless somewhere, I was dreaming that this is the greatest thing that could ever. And so when God began to open some doors, and on the stage in the Philippine Islands, where tens of thousands, some say as many as a hundred thousand in one weekend receives the Holy Ghost, I'm not standing there with shaking knees, but with a boldness because, I, man, I, I've done this a thousand times. In Madagascar, within one service where there was over 300 received the Holy Ghost and over a thousand in two or three day service, I've done this a thousand times. And when they walk down to the front with gross hanging off their neck, 
And they wheeled them up in a wheelchair. And God has spoke to me to pray a word of my... I'm not intimidated. I'm not fearful. I'm not saying why this and maybe this. And I'm just saying no big deal. I've done this a thousand times because I proved where I was. And God prepared where I was going. And what sustained me in the boring everyday routine of just personal devotion, if I can say it that way, and character development was the dreams. We have a lot of people that know what they have to do to become what's been prophesied and spoken into their life. But they don't realize that they got to keep dreaming. And you've put away some dreams. Just bring it to me. Bring it to me. I'm preaching to some people that are not as young as you used to be. And some of you have put your dream up because what you dreamed, you're thinking maybe it's never going to happen. But you've got to pick them dreams back up and realize that God is the one that spoke this to you. And that you've got a purpose. And you're not going to let all the young people begin to fulfill their dreams and realize that somewhere in the process you just let your dream down. You've got to pick your dream back up and know who you are. You've got to believe who you are in God and dream it again. And every time you go to that sterile practice, you've got to declare, it's the seventh game of the World Series, the crowd. Until when finally God opens the door for you. Then you're going to be able to step on that rubber. Look into that catcher. Get your sign. And do what you've done a thousand times in your dream. I want you to stand with me. Nathaniel, the enemy's been fighting you, Bubba. Your dreams are revived because of change of geography and things that have happened. But recently, the enemy said, well, look where routine and stuff is bringing you. Can I tell you that there's growth in you, Bubba? There's a more powerful anointing upon you than I have ever seen upon you. That even while it seems like things are just going routinely, I'm seeing something in you every day. You're becoming a better marksman with that intercessor. You're becoming more powerful and effective with that testimony. Your prayer is becoming more in tune. There's a greater sensitivity in the spirit. Pick your dreams back up and know who you are in God and declare that you're messing with the next prophet. You're next and messing with the next anointed soul. You're messing with the next gift operator in God. You just don't want to do this enemy. Lift your voice, bro, right now. Lift your voice and pray that out. My brother, there's a generational anointing upon your life. Somebody in your past went before and got a hold of God. I don't know if that's a mom or who that was. They knew how to get a hold of God, but that mantle's trying to rest upon you. And while you've had a relationship with God, God's saying, okay, now there's a time to do something deeper, to go something greater, to realize that you have a purpose and He wants to use you in the kingdom of God. Is that okay, my friend? 
I speak, God, that we receive this word, that we would walk in the strength of that, the anointing of that, the purpose of that, that we would have this momentum of this baseball in our hand to realize we need to dream the dreams again and take that anointing and take that purpose and walk in that blessing and walk in that anointing. Never forget who you are, man of God. Even though the talents and the giftings might not be comparable to others, God's not looking at talents and giftings. He's looking at the heart. So know that you have a heart that's after God and dream the dream. Mama, just your faithfulness has anointed. Just because on a Wednesday night when energy isn't there and there could be excuses, you are here. You love the Word of God. You love the people of God. Your faithfulness is being counted for you. Hand of God is going to move in your situation. I see. I see loved ones you're praying for that God is going to move on their hearts and give them opportunities again. You stay faithful, Mama. You pray the prayer again. You pick up the dreams and know that it's not, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. If you want a baseball, you, you can find some at Academy or Dick's Athletic Store. But if you need a momentum to never forget you're a dreamer, and that while you're practicing the everyday routine, you're going to keep dreaming, then there is a momentum up here for you. And if you want to make the step to come get this, then stay in this altar and lift up your hands and make a brand new commitment to God and tell Him, I'm a dreamer. You saw me and called me a long time ago. But it takes more than being called of God. It takes more than being chosen or anointed. It takes someone being faithful. So my dreams are going to cause me to be faithful to my calling and faithful to my choosing and my anointing. I knew the young people would be some of the first people in this altar. But I'm reaching for some people that might not be in the youth group anymore as well. You need to come pick up your dreams again. You gotta dream them again. You gotta believe them again. You gotta know who you are in God. You are a soul winner. You are a witness to God. You are a powerful intercessor. <laughs> <laughs> if you're an intercessor go ahead and lift your voice and begin to intercede for this congregation begin to intercede for this church God's about to break through on the left and the right he's about to break through in this city on the left and on the right he needs you to step forward and know who you are that you've got a slingshot it's time to use it You've got a prayer, it's time to use it. You've got a testimony, it's time to use it. Woo! <laughs>
Okay, ministry, help me. South Africa Team 2018, let's begin to pray for people. If people have their hands up, their eyes closed, I want you to speak impartation. Ministry of this church, help me. If you're a minister here at Rack, I want you to help me, male and female alike. Pray for people and loose them into their calling. Revive a dream in them. Speak to them. This week, soul winning. This week, prayer warriors. This week, revival in our home. This, <laughs> this is who I am. I'll dream it. I know who I am in God.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm not going to call everybody up to the window tonight like we normally do. We want you to keep praying. Those that are praying, keep praying. About to baptize this young man. Brother Elijah is going to baptize him in the name of Jesus. Those that are taking pictures, if you you want to come. But we want people to keep praying because all this is spiritual stuff. This is spiritual birth, new birth. Oh, what God's doing in this place is keep keep praying and keep talking to God as this gets ready to happen tonight. You can stretch your hands this way if you're not praying for yourself and pray for this young man. He's been excited about what he's felt in service and he's just looking forward to more. Express his desire to be born of water or to see him full of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray for him. Lord, bless him. This is just a first step, God. This is just the beginning. I want you to put your hand upon him, God, and keep him and bless him and take care of him, God. Lord God, bless this young man now. Lord, as he goes down in this water, in your name. Oh, God, let your anointing fall upon him, God. Use him for your glory, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can we rejoice with heaven tonight? Hallelujah. 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 We just rejoice with heaven tonight. Mamo Makasiadamaha. What a wonderful presence. Hallelujah. Brother, lately we've seen this happen. You, you just can't you can't do things like this. Things that the result of, of the preaching, the result of the gospel, and without the presence of God just sweeping in in a mighty way. Well, I feel what you said you felt by that water heater just dropping on me right now. You can't get this close to the heart of God and not be affected by it and touched by it. And I'll tell you, the angels that are in this room, they're rejoicing with the ones that are in heaven. And you can just feel the brush of wings in this place as they rejoice. The soul coming into the kingdom. Oh, would you pour your heart out to him one more time with the Spirit of the Lord. There's anointed in this house. That's it. If you've got the Holy Ghost, let that anointing flow. Speaking other tongues, he
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want the ones that are going to be flying out tomorrow night to South Africa to come stand with Brother Green tonight. And then I want the rest of the church to gather in around them. We prayed. We fully expected that y'all would be there now. But I, I don't believe it was just an accident that, that you weren't. Because I know I, I, I heard from the Lord tonight something that I needed to hear. And without this service going the way it did, I wouldn't have. Or, not, or maybe later, but God knows when I need it. But when we... You said so many things preaching tonight that went along with a lot of things we expressed in prayer on Monday night, especially about where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so we prayed and we prayed and prophesied and spoke it in faith over the congregation that was here that night that, you know, why not, why can't the great revival start? here why can't this be 